Uh, hi and welcome to Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast and we're here in the studio at Wishaw and with my very good friend Gareth Shaw whose voice you've heard in the last few episodes and you can now see his face. The face for radio. Um, he's a good friend so I can abuse him but I won't. Um, he's a good guy. Media agent for Mediate and has been responsible partly because today we're actually celebrating a little milestone, yeah. but it's not a small one um, because we've actually gone through the 2000 barrier for our Instagram um, posts or Instagram followers. And what I want to say, Gareth, is thanks to yourself and Mediate for that because when we got together um, back in October mm-hmm. last year, I know you came officially on board in, in November, we were looking at 1200 followers, we've gone up in 800. Now, in around about eight, nine months, mm-hmm. um, by the time we've put the active posts together. Yeah. So, um, 100 followers a month on average. I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, from what you've told me this morning, that that's actually kind of bucking the trend. Mm-hmm. So, I think we're doing a lot of things very, very well. But um, I'll throw one out to you because it's nice to throw a curveball at you every now mm-hmm. and again. What do you feel has been the reason why? with what I'm doing and with your help at Mediate. Um, what do you think has been the reason for us bucking the trend um, at this point in time? I think it's quality, first of all. We've got a quality venue that we can shoot from. We've got a diversity in posting messaging, with you being a putting mm. short game specialist and having attachments and affiliations to people. I just think it gives us so much to play with gives us so much to use so much to post and I think one of the big things that people don't realize out there is it's the consistency it's consistent messaging week after week we kind of go on themes and try and get a product theme or a pattern over a week but with always a call to action that's the key I think one of the most important things from our point of view certainly for mine and, and Becky's when we sat down and we went through the whole process you know was time that this takes to actually do properly is an incredible amount of time mm-hmm. and you know it's worth every penny um, from an investment point of view from, from, for me um, you know as a golf coach my job is to coach people to improve their putting in the short game because that's my field of expertise um, you, you know putter fitting of course and wedge fitting but you know primarily I'm a coach and you know for me to do the social media side of things I always found was massively time consuming mm-hmm. as much as I really enjoyed it and you know we we saw that as a probably the shortcoming in terms of consistency so when I was on it I was getting lots of interaction I was getting lots of approach you know sort of inquiries etc but then you get into a busy pe- period of mm-hmm. coaching and all of a sudden you can't f- continue the same way which is when we realized that you know we needed to bring in the expertise and you know just create that consistency mm-hmm. and then and the nice thing i think from my point of view is that you give me inspiration to step outside of not my comfort zone because you're not you've not asked me to do that yet but actually to um more importantly to, to just inspire a few different ideas something that i may not have thought about mm-hmm. doing you know you've given me those ideas and of course then we've created some posts which have been mm-hmm. very and interactive today, and, and, podcast. and podcasts you know was um, you know, one of those things that you know we talked about in, in episode one, but ultimately, could we get 
a podcast of, of yours going, given that you know other people are asking you to come on there. So mm-hmm. you know, here we are. So yeah, look, loving it. Um, we're week three. Yeah. Um, what's on the list today's all about the journey. So I want to kind of help PJ pros out there who are aspiring to be at your level and talk about your journey and where it kind of started for you in terms of coaching venues how you built up to where we're sitting today in the, in the beautiful Putting and Short Game Academy. And I, I just love coming to see Andy because it is going back and people who remember Toys R Us, um, <laughs> Smith Toys now, those type of places for a golfer, this is just paradise. So just to kind of take the viewers and take the listeners through the, the journey really. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I can lay claim to some of the, certainly the internal parts of the academy here, um, but actually the building is uh, is owned by Alan Partridge, who's the head pro here at Wishaw, and, um, you know, Alan, for me, is, you know, he's the epitome of somebody who's very comfortable in what he does and allows me to come and, you know, do what I do, you know, and we work very well together as a team, and that's really important, um, you know, we... I'm sure along the way I've ruffled his feathers, but you know he's been very gracious. But you know what we what he had here was a space that was underutilized. He built it for a purpose, which then didn't really happen. Um, you know, with another pro, and I'm going to say about probably twelve or thirteen years ago now. I mean, so it's a good while. And you know, Alan and I have known each other a long time. We coached at uh, Warwickshire. Uh, junior coaching county program and uh, we worked very closely together it was kind of you know funny really because we we didn't orchestrate anything you know it happened you know and you know for whose purpose and what reason did it all happen so you know we got together Yalan recognized my putting and short game you know capabilities and asked me to work with some of his clients um, you know and hence when my academy and studio closed down six years ago um, in North Birmingham, it was a case of uh, where can I go? So it was a very simple thing. And, and Alan gave me the first nudge towards special towards specialising. I was specialising, but kind of away from coaching uh, swing. And you know, he, he was very encouraging on the basis of yes, you can come along and you know rent the space. That's not a problem. Um, for eighteen months, it had a very different feel and configuration to what it is today. Um, but he very, very fervently said, there's no room for you to do swing coaching here. So he yeah, had to find another venue to do some swing coaching, which was fine, I did, but it was inconvenient. It was another 40 minutes away from here, which meant if I had you know, a lesson at nine o'clock at swing coaching and 11 o'clock here, that was like a panic to, to mm-hmm. do the drive half an hour from where I was living over there then get back over here it was just kind of crazy and you know as much as i was trying to facilitate for my students what i'd always done for them um you know i had to relinquish that because it didn't make good business sense and 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 it was burning me out Mm. you know I, i did it for I'm going to say about seven or eight months and, you know, as we got into the winter and not so good weather and travelling around doing that, it just seemed kind of crazy really. And here was right on my doorstep. Mm -hmm. Now I would happily commute half an hour to an hour to come here because this is the ideal venue if I found somewhere else to live. But that, you know, that's certainly not for now, but, you know, ultimately perfect. 15 minutes from Birmingham Airport, you know, just off the motorway links 
around. So I get clients coming in from Ireland and from mm. Europe on the plane, ordinarily. Of course, mm. that's just starting to open back up again now. Um, you know, and it's easy to get from wherever to here because of the motorway links. So, you know, I couldn't have a better location in terms of location and facility. Well, you know, 800 square foot of prime hutting real estate. Um, it, you know, it's just fantastic. You know, we've got Zen Green stage and, you know, sort of three putting surfaces with, you know, 30 foot putts, you know, involved. Um, you know, it gives me the opportunity to be able to do longer range putting as well as, you know, sloping putts and green reading mm-hmm. and, and, and the like, you know, with putt lab, we've got workshops so we can custom build putters for clients. We can adjust the ones they've got or they can buy you know, with the brands that we have with Seymour and Evenhall. So, you know, from our, from my point of view, you know, I couldn't have a better facility. And of course, outside at the golf course, we've got a short game area as well, which allows me to do the chipping, short range pitching, mm-hmm. bunker shots, etc. And behind us is a swing studio that allows us to dial in all of the wedge shots with GC quad and body track and, mm-hmm. and the like. So, you know, for me to have everything in literally you know, 50 yards is too far. You know, I mean, that's just like the other side of the clubhouse <laughs> for the green, you know, I mean, that, but, but it literally to have everything on site within, you know, sort of a two minute walk mm-hmm. is, is phenomenal. So, um, yeah, very fortunate. I know I'm very appreciative of, of, of the opportunity and also the fact that, you know, Alan is so gracious. It kind of, right, it's your space, you crack on. Was it literally a blank canvas when you came in? It wasn't really. I mean, you know, to be fair to Alan, it was his building and it was constructed quite differently. So, you know, as you came in through the entrance area, it was kind of a, a storage and workshop area itself. So it wasn't very becoming and Alan would admit that. Um, and, he, you know, there's a little gym area. So the building at the front was kind of split into two sort of office sections, really. You know, entrance, which became a, a messy workshop. So mm. it was never the great first impression. Um, you know, and, and Alan was definitely reluctant to do anything with it to start with because he didn't know how long I'd be here, you know, and, you know, there was a net here, so it was very open plan, it was all vaulted, so, yeah. you know, it was a nightmare to call in the summer and, a, you know, an arm and a leg to, to heat it in the winter, I mm. mean, you know, it took forever to heat. I mean, he never got like this in the in the winter. I mean, you were thermaled up, and you might as well be coaching outside. I mean, you know, it was okay. Don't get me wrong; it was undercover, and you were appreciative of that. But it never really got warm. Mm. Um, and of course, during the summer, you'd be dripping. You'd be sometimes you're better off outside. You know, even if it was thirty degrees, because it could be thirty-seven, thirty-eight wow. degrees in here. All right, we've got AC, so we can cool it down. But it took forever to do do that, and cost as well. You mm. know, and I've got you know, all these things you have to be mindful of. So this is all insulated now, and you know, we made a great conversion, which will be five years in December, to what it is today. And I've got green stage and storage, and you know, desperate to use that, but we couldn't fit it in the way it was. So I had to put a proposal together, and and Alan was very, very forthcoming and said, okay, I can't do it all on my own. Mm-hmm. So listen, I'll get my hands dirty with you. So we spent six weeks in between lessons. So we would literally knock a wall down, dust it all out, clear everything out, dust it all down. I felt like we were hosing it down, hose ourselves down, crack onto a lesson. Um, so it was a bit hectic and all a little bit hands-on. And we did that literally, I'm gonna say, it took us 40 days. Um, in total from start to finish. I think we had a couple of days off and actually the green stage went in, um, I'm gonna say 
30, around the 30th, 28th and 30th of November, and I turned the key on the door and dropped the shutter at quarter to five in the morning. Wow. So, yeah, and we, we opened, I think if I remember rightly, the Saturday was the first um, of December, and we opened then and, you know, sort of, it was still fairly blank canvas, you know, it was kind of like everything was just like carpet and nothing else in here really, apart from we've got a screen on the wall and, you know, yeah, it was kind of, you know, look back now and think, I've got a little journey board on my, mm. on my um, uh, iPad and, you know, it's like, wow, I'm just showing the kids at the weekend, it was like, blimey, you know, that's, what a difference, mm. you know, that we have today and, you know, from what it was. And, you know, it's purpose-built now. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, really. You know, when you've got a purpose-built facility that does the job that it needs to do, then ultimately, you know, your clients are going to be more than satisfied. You know, they're going to be, you know, they're guaranteed a satisfaction, you know, of an experience, not just from, you know, the knowledge, but also the fact that the equipment is there. Mm -hmm. And not everybody's going to be fortunate enough to do that. No, the space, if it kind of equates it to home, if, what are, we, are we talking, are we a quarter size of a basketball court or something like that well, kind of not size? not quite a basketball court, <laughs> but, you know, it's 800 square foot, so, you know, in terms of, and obviously we've sacrificed the height of a basketball court now. Um, yeah, we've got 800 square foot, you know, sort of nyan, sort of, about 75 square metres for those of you in metric. So, you know, that's a, that's a lot of space and, you know, and I would never say it's finished, mm -hmm. you know, we're constantly evolving it, you know, at some point we'll put new floors in and, you know, again, you know, and, and sort of offer another level of, of, of coaching that can be done from that, um, you know, it's 40 foot from one side to the other, it's 20 feet across, so it's mm -hmm. some kind of an idea um, in terms of what it, what it is and that means that there's a 40 foot putt. 40 plus if you go from corner to corner in the room which isn't being utilized at the moment and you know I, I see no reason why we can't do that mm. so um, yeah you know we, we, we will at some point. I love the story about the graded floor trying to tell everybody about that kind of what, what labor and man hours you put into yeah, that. Yeah so you know where the camera's actually sitting on the floor at the moment but yeah so we've got 30 foot or 10 meter um, stretch of of the uh, AstroTurf carpet. All the AstroTurf in here is designed to be used outside, so it is fully universal. Um, yeah, the idea was to create the perfect gradient. I um, established that on average, a putt of 30 feet would break around 2%. So I started in the corner and I got lofting board and um, some packing, uh, Packers and blocks of timber and started at the wall and moved out and created a 2% gradient and so slotted each board in and measured every single board into place with a tiny little measuring stick and I, I did have a bar which, which was straight and a, and a little measuring ruler which gave me percentages. Um, and I put it down, it took me 15 hours wow. to do so uh, and that was a day. So I was here on my knees for a day. I, could, I had to stay on my knees because I couldn't get up to get, I felt like I crawled, pulled out to the car. But yeah, I put, I put this down. Um, I wouldn't say it was labor intensive, albeit I had to obviously move these lofting boards and they don't come light, um, they are quite heavy. But um, yeah, move, maneuver those, got them all into place, measured everything down. And then, you know, when we got the uh, green stage in, uh, Andy who came and fitted this, 
set a laser scanner on the room and he said, um, do you want to know how accurate that is? And I said, oh yeah. So you know, we've got a plug in the middle of the room, so we used that as a centre point and lined everything up and you know, went to the corner and he's put the scanner around and he's gone, so what did you use to line this up with? And I said, you know, a tiny little thing, I pulled it out, he's gone, no way, there's no way you've used that. And I said, why? He said, because it's 2.0 right at the wall. At the plug, it's 1.97. And at the, uh, at the, the start of it, it's 2.07% slope. I said, it's pretty accurate then. And I'll be honest with you, as part of me was like, oh, God, I wish I'd have got that bit up in the middle. <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm 0 0.03. Um, so I'm pretty close. But that wasn't good enough for me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. And he said, the 2.07, the don't panic there. He said, because I noticed you haven't screwed the far corner down. He said, so, you know, you just stand on that. He said, and that comes back down to zero. I can't believe you've done it with that, but you can give yourself a pat on the back. So it was like, wow. Now, what's interesting is, even though the flooring had been down for a number of years, um, you know, the, the studio had been in, um, it has moved a little. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's subject to movement. So there's a little bit of play uh, in it now in terms of in the middle section. It's not quite. It's um, 1.86 now. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, we're still pretty close. I think that's close enough to two percent of slope so we've got a pretty good idea and from you know it allows us to do 10 foot reads you know two percent and then we can move out onto the green stage and throw the percentages all mm. over you know sort of compound breaks and just left to right right to left i think that's so important though because the type of clientele that are coming through the door if that's a tour player if that's a recreational golfer mm -hmm. it's the attention to detail that will make the difference yeah yeah I'm a bit ocd but do you, <laughs> do you think that's a good quality and especially putting in a short game when it is a matter of those minuscule points to, to oh, quite drop. Yeah, in. I mean, you know, when we're looking at, you know, we, we measure using Sand Putt Lab, we measure a 10 foot putt and we measure to, with, to a tolerance. And, you know, we know the part of the reason why it's 10 foot, uh, you know, is a one degree error at 10 foot is 2.09 inches. Now, you know, that equates to. The corner, the, the edge of the hole, in effect, with the edge of the hole being 2.125 inches, it's as near as damage. So, you know, that's more than good enough. You know, we don't need to come back a fraction of an inch, mm -hmm. you know, or you know, a fraction of a foot to, to try and make that fit. So, you know, one degree, 10 foot likelihood is it's going to miss. Um, but understanding that, you know, that's really the important thing is once we get to a point of understanding, um, you know, that's critical points and, you know, those critical points are for me, you know, part of what we, you know, what we do, you know, if I can get a player to, you know, recognize their error, which is my first point of reference on putt lab is where's the face and path relative, um, you know, invariably we'll see four, five, six degrees of error face typically open to path. Um, of course we do see close the path as well, but, you know, typically the golfer who's struggling is kind of, you know, I was looking at these numbers the other day, it's probably a 70-30 split that I'm seeing. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily industry standards, just what I see. Um, you know, where the face is, you know, open to path of club. I would say path of club is significantly one of the, you know, if we've got an error that you can sort of nail down, that's pretty much it. Again, that comes with poor posture, as we've talked about in other 
um, formats. But yeah, ultimately, I think once we get into a, a, an awareness that if we can get that club face down, close that gap, mm -hmm. you know, the ball becomes more predictable. And when you get more predictable, you know, smash factor, even though, you know, we generally relate smash factor to drives. You know, this, we have a variable smash factor for putting because we have different speeds. You know, so you, know, you step on a drive and you find your maximum speed, you're going to pretty much play that most of the time. So, you know, when we're looking at a putt, you know, we're probably looking at somewhere close to three mile an hour for 10 foot. You know, so the 15 you know, feet is going to be a little bit more than that, you know, and again, gradients are going to vary that as well. So the energy transfer is going to be greater and, or, or less depending on the length of the putt. So, you know, you're looking for quality of strike, you're looking for sweet spot strike quality and then obviously face and path and, and loft and angle of attack. You know, there's so many variables in putting that, you know, we can, we are in control of, but actually we struggle with control on that because of the lack of momentum. You know, mm -hmm. the, the putter struggles with, with pace or struggles with speed momentum. So swing a driver at 90, 100 mile an hour, there's momentum in that swing. It's going to swing itself in effect. You're not really going to manipulate an awful lot of it. Yeah. You get to a putt, then you can be very manipulative. And you know, I had a fellow in the other day, and you know, very significant yip taking place. And you know, interestingly, we it was still evident, but we smoothed it out significantly after a couple of hours. You know, getting the optimum fit, getting into a posture where it allowed him to to move more of his bigger muscles and you know subsequently not react with his hands and you know a massive massive improvement on the numbers at the end of the session so you know that's the start of his journey he's recognizing that you know with his putter fitting you know his new posture his freedom to swing the putter using his chest rather than you know manipulate with his hands you know even at three mile an hour he's able to control that club head more significantly and you know yeah for me to have the attention to detail and I think if you ask any short game putting specialist you would probably look at guys who are you know a, a much more attention to detail in terms of numbers than you know the guys are on the swing coaching not that there aren't guys out there because I know there are a few will get upset at that statement mm -hmm. but you know there are a few obviously we're going to dial in the numbers and you know they're, they're on their GC quads and trackmans and and the like looking at numbers for swing but you know ultimately you know you can make very very quick gains by improvement you know very small margins so with all the kind of advancements in technology and things that we've got now players using launch monitors and there's lots of um, kind of different swings out there we say now you're Daniel Burgers you're Matt Wolves I've seen a lot of coaches coaching number rather than coaching the perfect looking golf swing. What are your thoughts on that and how it applies to the short game? I think from a swing point of view, you've got time to, to create the perfect mix. Um, you know, when it comes to short game, you haven't got the time or the length of swing to hmm. create a perfect mix if you've got the wrong ingredients in the mix. So, you know, if I... If I say that, you know, putting is all rotation or chest movement, you know, then that's all it is. There isn't a, a, a hinge of the wrist or a fold of the elbow or a lift of the arm. You know, we're not getting that putting. Predominantly, there is no real lift of the arm. The, the movement from the chest back and forward moves the hands from side to side. And, and that is it. So the swing's at its lowest point, albeit the putter will come off the ground 
course, which should do. Um, I do see folk trying to make the putter almost appear like you know it's putting in a square, which mm. is always a bit peculiar to watch and you know see the data, and then you look at it and go like, did you realise this? No, yeah. <laughs> um, invariably. So you know when a putter stays low to the ground on the way back, it doesn't mean flat to the ground. Um, you know, but I do see that. You know, I see it too often, really, for me not to say it. So. Um, when it comes to short game, when it comes to chipping, again, you know, chest and hip rotation, you know, again, we're not lifting the arms above the head, you know, mm -hmm. a little chip, you know, that's going to land the ball three to five paces in front of you doesn't require anything more than just a turn of the chest from side to side. But if you do it with your hands, you're missing the sequential trick from the body. So you can do it with your hands but you're, it'll break down mm -hmm. and you know you may be very good at it now and think ah you know I've got no problem with it that's fine great but um, it doesn't always work like that and it won't always work like that because the brain you, you're going against the brain's processing of sequential movement and cause and effect mm -hmm. so you know for me when I'm looking at putting a short game it's all about what do we need to do to make cause and effect happen most efficiently and so if I want to move the putter from side to side, you know, I need to move my hands, which moves the handle. The handle subsequently moves the shaft and then the head. But to move my hands, I need to identify that I can do it with my hands, but I need to do it with my chest to smooth everything out. Because if this movement is smooth at the grip, it's more likely to be smooth at the club head. And that's where, when you've got 90, 90 95% of the ball data start line coming from the club face, you don't want the hands getting involved, mm -hmm. and you know it's why you know you know you should never miss a part of three feet. You know the arrow is you know six degrees either side of the target line. I mean it's three degrees either side of the target line. A six degree cone of error. You know how on earth do you miss a putt with six degrees of error? Well, you could aim incorrectly to start with and not factor in the break, but you know in theory you know you shouldn't have a six degree error. Mm -hmm. You know potential, let alone factor. You know that that kicks in. So. You know, if you can get the putter to move through the chest movement and then subsequently chipping through the chest, then you introduce wrist hinge because that's taking the golf club up for the first time rather than, you know, sort of chest and then lifting the arms. You know, you add the sequence at the right time. But in the golf swing, you've got turn and hinge and lift and fold of the, of the trail arm. You know, it doesn't really matter when you put them into the mix. So as long as you turn the hips and chest, as long as you hinge the wrists, albeit, mm -hmm. you know, I suppose Bryson DeChambeau's trying not to, but, you know, clearly doesn't need that extra lever, you know, to, to help him hit the golf ball the distance he is. But, um, you know, when you add all of those, it doesn't matter if you hinge the wrists, turn your shoulders, you know, and then lift your arms, or, you know, that'd be sort of a, a Lee Westwood, mm -hmm. you know, sort of wrists start the swing and maybe the handle leans forward a touch, you know, and then he gets into his turn. And, you know, one of the best golf swings, most functional golf swings that have been out there. You can't swing short game like that because you can't hinge at the, no. you know, at the wrist. It, it becomes a weakness in your, okay, on your armory, you know, and you, the best you're going to be is ordinary, not, you know, rather than, you know, excellent. And when you've got a swing that's excellent, it, you know, it puts pressure on you, on your short game, and it ultimately throws back to the long game pressures that you don't really need. Mm -hmm. You know, and it means that ultimately, it's the, that sequence is the most important part of 
short game and then subsequently swing. So I think when you're looking at numbers, for me, start at the hole. You know, we talk about, you know, the stroke to swing system that mm -hmm. I, I taught for 20 years before I, you know, stopped coaching swing. Stroke to swing was about starting at the hole and moving out rather than, you know, sort of starting on the range, hitting golf balls in the air with a, with a lofted club of seven iron or something, you know, and getting the ball away rather than actually learning how to swing the club from side to side using the chest and, and then ultimately a little bit of wrist hinge and a little bit of lift in the arms and a full lift in the arms and you've made a swing. Mm -hmm. Very simplified, but ultimately if it is simplified, but it also flicks the sequence which yeah. in the brain which you know i i see the most efficient results from so you know and not just at recreational level mm -hmm. but but you know when i talk to an elite player invariably i'm talking to an elite player because they're an elite player and you know i'm not so bothered about their golf swing albeit i can see movement patterns in their putting stroke exactly with those movement patterns in mind looking back to the golf this weekend we were at the memorial at jack's place but it was the work day so it's a two-week tournament at that venue but something that kind of set social media on fire first of all was phil mickelson in the back of every green pretty much every opportunity he did he was tucking a driver <laughs> under his armpits yeah. and having a put what what was the idea around that for you but also people were saying about rules is yeah. that permitted in the rules of golf? Yeah, I think from a from a rules point of view, and the threads that I were following, um, and my observations of it, had he have used the tour stick, um, that would have contravened the rules. But because he's using a club, it doesn't. Now, what I will say on that particular drill is because, and he used his driver rather than a wedge. Now, logic says you might use a club that's very similar to, uh, you know, the one you're using. But ultimately, the driver is the lighter of the clubs, and you know the club head is the most extreme part of that. So what he's trying to do is get um, his arms and his chest to work coordinated a little bit, like I was talking about. You know, in terms of getting the motion going, my sort of my challenge to that is that you know Phil's trying to rock his shoulders rather than turn his chest. Um, and for me, I think the big deal is that when you're trying to turn your chest you get the optimum motion. And when you're trying to rock your shoulders, you get a very sort of contrived motion. And, you know, Phil's extremely flexible. I mean, he might be 50 years of age, but you know, the, the guy's more flexible than I probably was when I was 25. So um, certainly more flexible than I am now at 51. But, you know, crucially he's, you know, if, if he was just working on rotation, that'd be a good drill apart from the fact he is prone to pulling in a mm -hmm. little bit. Um, but, you know, in principle, I like it, you know, and I do get players to work with a tour stick or a towel under the arm to try and feel some connective pressure, but I don't want the arms to pull back in, you know, you, you know, that, I'm, I, you know, arms, upper arms should have a little bit of pressure maybe, but no, they're not pulled back. You know, when we flex forward, we want the elbows to be underneath the shoulder, it's where they hang and ultimately where they want to return. Any deviation to that, has to then be learned behavior rather than natural principles and characteristics. So, you know, if we are tucking the arms in, we're kind of telling our hands and arms where they need to be all the time. And that then can be a little contravening mm -hmm. you know, what the natural tendencies are. So, you know, ultimately instinctive, natural. It surprised me that it was Phil doing it, you know, because he is so good. But if I, 
was putting my neck on the block and of course I do so you know why not say it again now you know Phil doesn't hold as many putts as I think he should do and you know and, and he's an exceptionally good putter mid-range um, and misses a few putts short range that you know ordinarily would expect him to hold and you know that may well then come down to the reasonings behind you know sort of he's rocking the shoulders which ultimately then can manipulate the hands or the hands don't swing freely back to the ball and through the ball to the, back to the position where they ordinarily should be hanging um, and that is a criticism that is not aimed at Phil because he's made it work look the guy is arguably the most successful player in the last 15-20 years apart from Tiger Woods so you know certainly you know he's got an opportunity to complete his major slam you know in the next few weeks and you know he's he is an exceptionally good player look you know his record tells us how good a player he's been you know but I, I think from a coach's point of view you're always looking to ways how would you have improved a player or how would you improve a current player Phil's career is coming towards the end although I think he's probably got another five years of you know banking cash big time mm. you know and uh, he can go as long as he wants to go doing that um, it's not a criticism of Phil it's a criticism of his methodology and technique that ultimately I think you know could have given him uh, you know a greater cutting edge mm -hmm. you know against somebody who's more free and instinctive like Tiger because you know, yeah. I don't think, you know, their tee to green game was a, that much different. Um, arguably, Phil probably had a slight edge on the short game, albeit, you know, Tiger never appeared to get it wrong. Um, you know, but Tiger definitely knocked in those shorter range putts when he needed to, and, and Phil just let one or two of them get away. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the history books prove that, but... You know, that's not a criticism on his career by any means. No. You know, the guy's been exceptional for golf. He's a, you know, straight up guy, you know, I mean, he's prepared to sacrifice his golf and his career for his family. I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for, for mm -hmm. that, what he did, sacrificing an opportunity to go and play in the Open, the US Open, yeah. you know, to go to his daughter's graduation, I think is exceptional. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, and, and why wouldn't you? Um, you know, there'll be plenty of guys out there that, again, I would never judge on that either on the basis that, you know, they're making a career decision. But ultimately, you know, these schools need to get their graduation time sorted, not clash with majors. I mean, that's <laughs> the bottom line. I mean, and Phil would agree with that. So <laughs> talking of short range putts, Colin Morikawa had a putt to get into a playoff par putt. We've watched it again this morning. <laughs> it nearly missed. Wow. Yeah. Um, yes, it did. And, and again, you know, ultimate pressures, isn't it? You know, it, you know, why do you end up missing a putt? Why do you risk the potential of missing a putt? There's a couple of things on that, actually. I was looking at it again with you this morning, and, and you know, I saw a snippet of it last night. I, don't, I, I didn't watch it all last night, I've got to be honest with you. It was, um, I, I just got the impression that it didn't quite have the momentum that um, mm -hmm. the other tournaments have had over recent weeks. Is it, you know, it, it was lacking Bryson, I don't know. Yeah. It was an earlier finish last night. As it well, was an earlier finish, which, which it again got into, you know, into the way of, of our evening a little bit. But, you know, I did sneak, you know, I watched the playoff. Um, yeah, the vulnerability of being able to miss a putt. You know, it's what's really interesting. You very rarely see a putt miss right very rarely on the shorter range putts. Now, you know, get out a little bit longer and you see putts go a little bit right. But again, 
right to left, left to right. He's got a right to left putt there with that putt, and you know he, he he's gone in left door. You know, and is it a dimple deflection? Mm. You know, it's just say that the stroke didn't look really bad, but you know, did he get it a little bit out the heel? It, it looks like it. It looks like the ball's come off the club face a little bit further left than he would have anticipated. And at that sort of range, you can get dimple deflections depending on you know what surface is striking the ball. I mean, you know, criticisms on the putter there. What kind of surface is striking the ball? I don't know what club. I'm I'm not interested in what club he's using. At this point in time but it could be a dimple deflection i've seen it i've seen it a number of times in in testing um it will only happen at short range and it's almost short enough to get in there and be potentially a dimple deflection what happens in that kind of terminology just for people kind of breaking it down a little bit what, what is a dimple deflection well, a golf ball obviously has a dimple, the edges of the dimples, and again, ra- randomly you place the golf ball down as much as you might sort of put a line on the ball, and what, it is random, so which dimple or which edge of dimple you might strike, and of course, then, you know, ultimately, you know, certain edges of dimples may be a little harsher or, you know, sort of just slightly different mm-hmm. angles, um, and then we've got milling on the face, and, you know, some putters have a very deep, uh, milling pattern on them and it, if if a putter is you know imagine that the milling machine is working across the putter from heel to toe or toe to heel then it leaves a circular pattern across you know we look at them and go like, oh they look really nice they're really nice patterns but you know unfortunately it leaves a vertical line in the strike point and you know that vertical line can only mean one error if there's an error so I'm not suggesting there'll be an error at any point in time, but if there is, the only error it can be is left and right dimple deflections. Mm-hmm. So, if, you know, if you look at a, a, a groove-faced putter, you know, that, that is more in a horizontal configuration, then any dimple deflection that those grooves may cause on the golf ball can only be up or down. It can't be left and right. So, yes, it might force the golf ball down into the ground or launch it up in the air a little bit, but it's not going to miss left and right and and you would think that from 15 inches you couldn't miss a putt you know but you can and mm. you know we've seen that in testing and and that data is quite damning to the putters that were were tested and you know that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to miss a putt but you couple that with a number of other factors club face being maybe slightly closed right to left break grain of sand a blade of grass that you know a, mm. a, a small blemish on the green you know all of a sudden you add to the perfect storm of you know three four five degrees of error you know at the point or around the point of impact and launch line so you know those things happen and, yeah. and that that is a, a very real phenomenon albeit it doesn't happen very often it would also mean that you know to overcome that i'd say just knock them in a bit firmer. Yeah. Because the firmer you strike it, the less dimple deflection you're likely to get. Do you see that with a lot of, I wouldn't say professionals, but recreational golfers who miss those short range posts? Is it because of pace? Invariably, it's very short sided on pace, yeah. There's, and it dribbles to the hole, you know, and you've seen it, mm. you know, and I certainly have. I see it here in the studio, albeit not that often, but balls just not going in at the right pace. And I think once you get a, once you get a putt, 
coming off the face of the club at the right speed, it's less likely to have the variables, mm -hmm. you know, and those variables, they have to create, there has to be a three, four, five variables that create the perfect storm for dimple deflection, you know, and I'll go you know, back in history, you know, 1985 Ryder Cup at the Belfry, just down the road from here, hinged on a putt of 17 inches, and Craig Stadler won't thank me for, mm. you know, reminding folk of that, but that whole Ryder Cup was pivotal. It, Saturday morning, you know, four ball, four sums, I can't remember which one it was at that point in time, but he missed a putt on the 18th green to force a half, or to, to lose the lead. Mm -hmm. You know, they were one up, with, um, you know, on that hole, they were dormy, and just knock a putt that you would walk up and tap in one-handed. You know, and he hit it at a kind of a dribble speed, but it looked like a dimple deflection. You know, I can recognize them now, but even at that point was like, whoa, you know, that that didn't look like a bad putt. Yeah. You know, albeit, you know, it was again, a right to left putt and it was uphill. So, it, you know, he could have hit it in firmer and mm -hmm. a little bit of pressure, the perfect storm, the putt misses. And, you know, so we've seen it in history, you know, and, and I've had a player, you know, do the same thing and, you know, that forced me to look at the putters a little bit more and, you know, and go into the reasons why that particular putter, that particular brand of putter at that point in time with one of the players that I was working with had a dimple deflection cause effect opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we saw that quite a damning report by the time we'd finished. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was... And, you know, I shared that with the manufacturer. Interestingly, very shortly afterwards, they changed an awful lot of their faces on their putters. Removed the deep mm -hmm. milling. Um, very, very few black heady putters now from that manufacturer because arguably it's designed, the, the etching or the milling is designed to remove uh, metal to reduce the hardness feel. Still hitting it with the same metal, but yeah. you know, reduce the feel of hardness by hitting it with less metal. That's the reason why manufacturers do it. Wow, great! Really good podcast today. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Insight mm. into the the journey in the studio. Tour talks very fascinating because from watching it on TV, I would have never thought with Colin's golf swing or his putting stroke there, it could have been dimple deflection. So just really interesting there. Yeah, and, you know, and it, again, unfortunately, until we actually get in front of that scenario and actually measure it, you know, we, we can't necessarily say that it's dimple deflection, but we can't rule it out. And so, you know, it may well be that, you know, okay, didn't his stroke, you, you were showing me, you recorded mm -hmm. it so I could see it and we could talk about it before we sat down. And it was like, yeah, that looks an okay stroke. Mm -hmm. It didn't look like a bad stroke. It looked more than okay. It looked like a good solid stroke. But I tell you what, we can't finish the podcast without saying that first playoff hole was 75 wow. feet of putts hold. For the, to roll it onto the second, I mean, just like, wow, you know, Justin Thomas's 50 foot and, and six <laughs> inches and then 24 feet, you know, and three inches to roll it on. I mean, that's just phenomenal. And, you know, and of course, you know, he ends up winning it as well. So, you know, talk about throwing the gauntlet down, but, you know, he, and halfway to the hole, it just never looked like JT was going to miss it. And, and likewise, mm -hmm. You know, with the follow-on putt, my word. You know, so it's a great. You know, we do talk about the fact that tour players always seem to hold putts, and they don't hold everything. Um, you know, as we saw and we've seen the challenges, and we've talked about the challenges. But actually, you know, it is. Um, 
yeah, one of those things that, you know, when you see the spectacle, these players are good. Yeah. You know, they, they know how to do it. And it'll be interesting to see how, you know, Jack and his team get to change the course this week for the unprecedented mm-hmm. second week hosting a tournament. And of course, you can't play at the speeds the first week and the second week because it'd be interesting to see actually whether or not he's got golf course to follow on from, you know, going forward mm-hmm. as well. That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, and one of the main reasons, of course, why we don't host tournaments consecutive weeks, albeit Pinehurst did it with the men's and ladies they US did. Open a few years ago. So um, it, it is possible that you can do it. But um, but ultimately, yeah, we've, um, we'll be interesting to see that. But uh, And Tiger's back. And Tiger's back, absolutely. So And, yeah, Bryson. So... What's the odds on Bryson playing with Tiger on Thursday? Wow. So, yeah, guys, we have had a great podcast. Thanks for uh, listening, as always. Um, Thanks, Gareth, for joining me here in the studio today. We will be back with you this time next week, and we will be talking about the memorial with a tour talk there. And all being well, we may have a little bit of a scoop on some wedges and we'll be talking a little bit more about wedges and wedge play as well as putting thanks for listening thanks guys we have great opportunities to spend some time with you we can't do it without you so like follow subscribe on all the other channels as well contact me on andy gorman golf and we will be back with you very very soon thanks for listening